Well, the mic is a formality, <laughs> so we can record it. I apologize. It's not conducive for promoting a spirit of intimacy, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll just get started here. Some people might trickle on in. Um, glad you're here. Happy Saturday afternoon, almost evening. Uh, and we just get to talk about pelvic floor, sex, pee, poop, all the things. So now I got all those words out and it will, they'll just be sprinkled in for our talk. Uh, so I just wanted to tell a little bit more about my story. So I'm a physical therapist. Most people are familiar with that profession. Um, I like to think of physical therapists as the musculoskeletal experts. Our schooling kind of perform or teaches us all about joints, muscles, bones. Um, and so then there are a few select of us that decide to specialize in the joints, muscles, bones of the pelvis. Um, I will say the pelvis is the center of the body. So there are times where I still work on shoulders because the shoulder is affecting how the pelvis and pelvic floor is working or the foot. Uh, it's really complicated and interconnected and really cool. Uh, the pelvis, so everyone, we're going to do a little touching exercise. Find your pelvis. Easy to find, kind of that bone, ridge bone that's the top of the pelvis. You can kind of follow it down the side of your legs. It kind of gets a little softer there. That's where a lot of muscles are. And then follow kind of through the front of your pelvis and get close to kind of where your bladder is. There's the rim of your pelvis right down here. There's a joint that rests right in there. Uh, then right here, kind of in the front of your leg is your hip joint. It's kind of cool. That's where things move. So your pelvis, and then in the back, so kind of follow it to the back. You can feel this plate structure. It's called your sacrum, and your spine attaches to your sacrum, sacrum to the pelvis, hips to the pelvis. They made a song off of that, right? Heads and shoulders, knees and toes. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, that is the area that I mostly work in. Uh, inside the pelvis, so the pelvic bone, rests a group of muscles called the pelvic floor. So it is a muscle group. There's several muscles, and it wears a lot of hats. It's responsible for a lot of things. Uh, it's responsible for keeping pee and poo in and helping pee and poo come out. Uh, it's important for stability for our pelvis, for our back, for um, our pelvic organs. So think uterus, bladder, rectum, intestines, urethra. Um, the pelvic floor helps to support those structures. Uh, also, it acts as a sump pump, so there are a lot of arteries and veins that rest in that area and it helps to push fluid around, um, and it's also really important in sexual function. So as far as what I do, really, uh, when any of those systems are not working appropriately, that's where I get to work. Um, so the people who come and see me uh, often have... Uh, things like incontinence, so which is just an intended loss of urine or stool, urinary frequency or urgency, prolapse, which is just a fancy word for when those pelvic organs have lost the support that they need, so they tend to shift downwards. Um, bowel or bladder dysfunction, uh, constipation, low back pain, pelvic pain, and pain with sex. So those are things that kind of fill up my schedule. Uh, if any of those things are like resonating, you're like, yeah, I deal with that. Welcome to the club. You know, everyone has something that they can work on in that area for sure. Um, and pelvic PT is a really good 
answer if something is kind of like, yeah, maybe it's time to take care of my body in that way. So shameless plug, there's several of them loaded in this talk of uh, something, just ideas to help uh, bring healing to that area of our bodies. Uh, What I've observed clinically in working with these conditions is a lot of shame, brokenness, uh, embarrassment, um, people adjusting their lives. Um, A lot of women, especially those who are struggling with bowel or bladder control, start to avoid the public. They become more reclusive, um, not engaging, don't go out as much or don't travel as far, which is really devastating when you think about it. Like that's, and they don't really talk about why or um, it's not really well known to the people around them often. Um, So lots of uh, embarrassment and um, even physical ramifications for stuff that's going on in that area. Uh, So two goals of this talk, you know, with that in mind, it's such a big topic. Uh, And I really struggled of like, how do we narrow it down, keep it focused and um, highlight kind of surface level things. It's kind of, as I was thinking about this talk, I kind of feel like it's a a shallow lake. (laughs) Like it's talking about a lot of surface area and not super deep in anyone, um, but more of starting a conversation. So that's really the goal is can we just start a conversation about this topic to bring it into the light because that's where darkness is is broken is into the light. Um, and also, so starting conversation, number one goal, number two, to offer hope for healing. Um, just hope is a powerful light bringer. Uh, and just to educate everyone and just talk that there are often things to be done um, to help bring more light and healing. Uh, A couple disclaimers. Like I said earlier, we're going to be talking about sex, menstruation, pee, poop, all that stuff. Don't be surprised. (laughs) And if you feel kind of like, ooh, this is getting a little uncomfortable, that's okay. Um, I will also say, though, it might be worth it to analyze where that uncomfortableness is coming from um, because uh, sometimes talking about these things and bringing uh, just unbiased and un, even just using words like vagina and penis and vulva and being able to use those words can really help break stigma um, and also teach our young people appropriate uh, language around those areas of our bodies. We'll get to more of that later, but yeah, sometimes if you're feeling a little uncomfortable at first, it's okay, but might be worth a little thinking about. Uh, cool. Oh, I lost my spot. Uh, oh, another disclaimer, I'm not a sex therapist. <laughs> uh, some pelvic therapists do become sex therapists because the sex is not just a physical act. And as a physical therapist, we're often treating the physical part of uh, sex and intercourse. Um, but in that, a lot of our conversations do become emotional and sometimes spiritual, um, sometimes mental. Um, I personally am not equipped to handle those conversations. I am always a safe place and ears to hear, but um, especially my sessions with my clients. But often, uh, sometimes people do need that. And so that is something that is 
exists. Uh, there are therapists out there who specialize in the topic of sex. Uh, another disclaimer, any advice that's given is not medical advice. There's my formal statement of, uh, yeah, important disclaimer there. Uh, we'll talk about a lot of suggestions, and I'm happy to give suggestions, but know that there's no way to have a talk that's individualized. We'll be talking a lot in kind of generic language and common stuff, um, but the best way to know a personal problem is to seek care personally. So just important disclaimer there. Uh, so why is this important? Uh, why is this conversation important? Uh, I strongly believe that Satan uses bad theology, current cultural norms, and sexual sin, either our own or others around us or close to us, to bring shame, guilt, hurt, hiddenness, and darkness. Um, and I want to do some myth-busting with you today. Um, so I've formulated the rest of the chat into six myths that we'll go through together. Um, and I've broken them up to different seasons of life. Uh, we kind of are all likely in different seasons. There's uh, some of you that may be single or dating, others that are married, newly married or long time married, um, others that are divorced or widowed, um, others that have been married for a long time. Um, so there's uh, a myth for each life phase. Uh, the first two are for everyone. Uh, the middle one's for single dating. Then we got one for married and two for married and then one for longer married. So that's where we're headed. Sound good? Sweet. Okay. First myth. Uh, this one's for everyone. Bodies and sex are gross. Yeah. We've all felt that at some point, right? <laughs> so it's totally a myth. Uh, what's the truth? So God created our bodies. Uh, and on the sixth day, he called all of creation very good. That comes out of Genesis 1. Important to remember that God, our creator, called everything very good, including bodies, male and female bodies. Uh, another important truth, uh, Jesus came in a body and saved us with his body. Uh, also really important. Uh, Philippians 2 says he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. If bodies were bad, Jesus wouldn't have had one. So it's uh, important to remember that, that bodies are good and created by God. If we believe that bodies and sex are gross, what are the consequences? Uh, first one, I think, is we don't honor the wonderful design that they are. Um, going back to very common verse, uh, Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're knit together in our mother's womb. And I love that knit um, verb. Knitting takes intentionality. It takes skill. You can't just throw a ball yarn across the room and expect it to become a sweater, right? It takes work. Uh, God designed us with work and with intentionality. He de designed our bodies as they are on purpose. Um, and they have function and they have good things about them. They're very complicated, but they're very good. Uh, so if we believe that lie, that bodies and sex are gross, within the context of women's bodies, um, sometimes if we talk about them in a shameful way, thinking about menstruation, thinking about body size, breasts, uh, you know, 
sexual function, if we talk about them in a shameful way, we're not honoring God's design. Uh, I think it's really important to start these conversations around bodies and body functions at a really young age. Um, There's a couple books that I brought with me that are really good resources if you have kids or around kids or have grandkids um, starting conversations at a young age in an age-appropriate way is really helpful at kind of starting to break some of the stigma, a lot of the shame around body stuff and just equipping um, our young kids in uh, ways that they need to be equipped. Uh, There's one story that I want to share that I... Uh, it went viral. It was a woman's Facebook post of something that happened to her daughter. So as the story goes, her daughter was on the bus um, to school and she started a period. And we've all been there, you know, all had an accident. Um, and she stood up and there was a boy, 13 year old boy who was sitting behind her. And he pulled her aside and said, hey, I have a sweatshirt. I think you had a little something, so here's my sweatshirt. And of course she was like, no, and then he's like, no, here's my sweatshirt. I have sisters, I understand. Like, way to go, that mom of that son, right? (laughs) To be 13 years old and to know um, the things that happen with menstruation and also to be there as a support for that girl at a very vulnerable Um, point in her life like how embarrassing that could have been for him to pull her aside in that moment like that is huge and I think we just need more of that we need more of that culturally um, of just open conversation supporting the ones the people around us so that's really important Uh, and those books are excellent resources to kind of help to tackle the like bigness of those topics Uh, and just breaking it up into simple ways so uh, to kind of go down the rabbit trail of menstruation um, in the the care and keeping of you which is uh, an American girl um, book Um, they talk through all of the things of um, how these are the options for uh, tampons and pads. Here's how you use them. How's it, here's how you dispose of them. You know, and just kind of walks through each step um, so that women, well, girls becoming women, um, aren't surprised. And we as parents, if you have um, kids, uh, should be teaching our girls and our boys about that in age-appropriate ways. So really important. Uh, I think it is really also important, like how do we break some of the stigma around bodies and sex are gross? I think it is important to use proper body parts uh, and talk to them and their functions appropriately. Uh, It's also important to pursue emotional and physical wellness and self-esteem. If you you think that sex is gross, uh, which is really a common thing, uh, it's you're at your most vulnerable in sex, right? Um, there's no hiddenness in those moments, and it's messy. It's really messy, uh, and there can be shame that builds if you're not confident in those moments or if your self-esteem um, or body image has some areas that need some redeeming work. So I think it's always important to also work on redeeming those aspects of our life. 
Um, caring for our bodies is also important. Um, eating well is important. Nourishing our bodies, fueling them is important. Exercise and moving our bodies, also important. Um, establishing good medical care and regularly visiting physicians who participate in screening and health monitoring is all important to just keep the conversation doors open um, so that you know, things that are going on in your body aren't shoved down and kept hidden. Sweet. Myth one. Busted, right? <laughs> Bodies and sex are, are created and good things. Cool. Myth two. This one's for everyone as well. Uh, leaking poo, pee or poo is normal, especially when playing sports, exercise, or after having kids, or as I get older. Um, false. False, 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 false. Leaking is never a normal function of the body. It is so common. It is incredibly common and something we don't really talk about, but it is never a normal function of the body. Uh, many women suffer with that, and it's really common with exercise. One study of adolescent athletes, so these female athletes, um, said an average of 49%, uh, so nearly 50%, will have loss of pee incontinence at some point. And the most common sports were trampoline and jumping. So these are girls who haven't even, you know, they haven't had babies yet, um, Not usually not sexually active, so kind of in their younger years, and still leaking pee. Uh, why are we not talking about that, right? I mean, if you think about that 50%, that's if you have two daughters, one of your daughters, right? Like, that's significant. Um, so how we engage with those topics is important. So really common, not normal. Uh, the consequence of if we think that something that is common is normal is we just, uh, we settle uh, and normalize something that shouldn't be normalized. Uh, I was at the, the store once and I saw a birthday card that said, uh, uh, it was a happy birthday card and it said, uh, what did it say? I hope you laugh so hard you pee your pants, <laughs> you know, and it's like, cool, that sounds funny, but it shouldn't be funny, right? <laughs> we shouldn't, don't settle. If you don't want to pee your pants when you laugh, don't settle. Uh, so what do we do with that? Uh, if that's not normal, what do we do? First, talk about it. Uh, you can talk about it with people around you. You can talk about it with your physician. You can come to pelvic PT, uh, treat a lot of that. There are also other treatments that are really effective, um, but that's one couple avenues to seek healing if that's something that you have dealt with or are dealing with. All right, myth number three. This is for singles and dating. Uh, having sexual desires is bad. Um, it's a really, I think, prevalent one, especially in the context of evangelical circles. We tend to jump, make a jump that if we have a sexual desire, that it's sin. Um, and I think that is so wrong. Uh, so what's the truth? What do we know about um, sexual desires and sex? So sex was created by God. He made it happen. Uh, he desired for it to be pleasurable. Uh, he created male and female anatomy to experience pleasure with sex. And he created us with sexual desires and the longing for intimacy. There's a whole book in the Bible, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, um, that is very graphic in parts and talks about, and it made it into the Bible. Like, 
we, we should pay attention. Like that is uh, a beautiful thing and uh, something that God created and God wanted uh, for us. Uh, so having sexual desires or sexual attraction, uh, I want to say it really loudly, it's not the same as lust. Uh, there's a difference. Lust involves a choice and an act of the will. Um, so for example, David seeing Bathsheba on the rooftop bathing, the act of seeing it, not a sin. Not, you saw her. But what he did with that information and that's where the sin is. You know, he called for her. He had sex with her. He uh, had uh, her husband killed in battle. That's all in 2 Samuel 11. Uh, that was where the sin happened. Because uh, the consequence of thinking that having a sexual desire is bad in singleness and in dating, we often suppress them versus nurturing them and discipling them and looking, seeking to understand um, and bring those desires to God. Uh, I think there's a big difference there. So in, the, so what do we do with this? In the, the call is, uh, in the unmarried years, uh, I think it's really important to steward and to disciple our desires versus becoming shamed, ashamed of them. Uh, recognize them. Their presence is not a sin. Process the, those desires and bring those desires to God. Um, and if those desires have shifted to sin, seek God and his truth and guidance for healing. So really important stuff right there. Cool. So there's three myths down. We're cruising. Uh, I wanted to pause because that's kind of a lot of content. Um, and, oh, I wanted to, I forgot this earlier. I made a little basket with paper. So if you want to pass it around, you don't have to take one. But sometimes when we, in this topic, there's, uh, if you want to write down a question, um, want to, it to be anonymous, you can, and we will get to those at the end. But I will also open the mic now if there are any questions that are kind of bubbling up to the surface um, as we're halfway through our myths. And obviously no pressure, but I will give an awkward amount of time for those who need more time to decide or put words. <laughs> yes, I am going to have you use the mic because it's recorded. Is that okay? Or do you want me to repeat it? Okay. So process those desires. Um, like I have teenage daughters who are not married and not dating yet. Um, can you expand in processing those sexual desires in a proper way? You know, how we as a parents can steward that and guide them. Uh, that is a great question, and I will attempt a short answer. Um, I think... I always think of parenting as kind of... Uh, like a bucket and you're slowly just dropping in water droplets and to fill this bucket up. Um, so my, that would be my first response of just sprinkling in age appropriate conversations that, that make sense and helping them navigate, um, in healthy ways. There are a lot of good resources. Um, there's this book over here. Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity. Um, that can be really helpful in the topic of desires. Uh, I think sharing our stories 
are super powerful. Um, and often stories, uh, I mean, that's why testimonies exist, right? You can't argue with someone's story. <laughs> uh, but sharing stories and experience um, to help guide our youth is really important. Um, I think the biggest thing with with sexual desire is to recognize that it exists and and really taking time to tend to that um, in appropriate ways, having conversations, uh, creating safe spaces, um, involving different people and different perspectives to inform that. So that would be my short answer. I don't have it all figured out. And um, I think it depends too on on your girls and, and their personalities. Um, but uh, if sexual desires are suppressed, uh, I've seen that play out in negative ways with the pelvic floor. Uh, you know, often it creates um, a closed type, like shameful posture um, if things are suppressed, uh, which can cause uh, physical ramifications too. So it's kind of a, a hodgepodge answer, but a drop in the bucket, little by little, sharing your your story and teaching them as it's appropriate. Yeah. Cool. There will be time later. So if you're thinking, keep thinking. All right, uh, myth number four for the married. Uh, women don't really want to have sex. Uh, not true. Uh, we have been told, uh, if you've grown up in the church, uh, I should say, that often the message is that men have this uh, insatiable sexual desire, that they are lustful beings, and um, that they're thinking about sex every seven minutes. I think I heard that in elementary school at first I'm like I don't know but that's really con like you hear that a lot um and it, just because you hear it I think often we think that that is true uh there was a study a survey in 2004 that surveyed married couples and asked about who wants sex more and they found that 25 percent of women wanted sex more than men 25 percent of men wanted sex more than women. Uh, and then 50% felt like their desires were pretty equal. So that's really fascinating, you know, and something that we should be probably chatting about. Because if you're, if you believe that lie, that men have, you know, they want sex all of the time, and that doesn't happen, that can lead to feelings of inadequacy as a woman. Um, or like, what's wrong with me if my libido is more than my husband's? Um, like, that shouldn't be a thing. Uh, so there's a lot of ramifications if we believe that lie. Uh, there's another survey that uh, they talked about the average duration for sexual encounters in heterosexual couples. And they found that most sexual uh, intercourse uh, encounters were 14 to 17 minutes. Uh, the average time for women to achieve orgasm is 20 minutes. So think about that for a minute. If most sexual encounters take place at a length of duration that don't allow for women to achieve orgasm, like that's certainly going to feed into uh, like women not wanting to have sex, right? Uh, sex has a very biological nature. Uh, it takes practice, it takes patience, uh, and open communication to develop. 
Uh, fun fact, God created sex organs. We kind of already talked about that. Uh, but he created women with a clitoris that has no other function than sexual pleasure. How fascinating is that? Like, men's orgasm is uniquely tied to procreation. Um, so it takes usually orgasm to propel the sperm forward. Uh, women don't need to orgasm to get pregnant. Uh, but the clitoris is still there because God put it there like that's pretty cool <laughs> and it's not tied to procreation so it's not has no other function than pleasure so uh that kind of helps to bust that lie that women don't really want to have sex um it there is something an anatomical feature there uh, that helps with pleasure uh, another truth on this topic, uh, women take more time to warm up compared to men. Um, really, uh, I heard someone describe it once as women are like ovens, men are like microwaves, <laughs> you know? So it's like, that's kind of true. Uh, you know, women take a little bit longer to warm up, to be ready to have sex. So what are the consequences if we believe this lie that women don't really want to have sex? Um, kind of already chatted about how it can lead to uh, odd feelings of like, I want sex more than my husband. What's wrong with me? Also, um, it can lead to you know, the experience of the woman isn't as important as the man's. Um, that's really powerful to think about. Um, also, another consequence would be that the woman becomes an object for the man to satisfy his needs and his desires. Um, and God did not make us as objects. He made us in his image. Um, and we are uh, daughters of the king. So really uh, some significant consequences if we believe that lie. So what's the call? Uh, women want and deserve good sex. So some tips to have good sex. Uh, one, consenting to sex. Uh, that is so important. Uh, both partners need to say, yeah, uh, that sounds like I want to do that. <laughs> consent, consent, consent. Very important. Another key, having sex when aroused. Uh, this book here, Great Sex Rescue, um, feel free to take pictures of these afterwards if you like or peruse through them. Um, uh, from that book, they did a survey and the, they found that women who were not aroused during sex and knew they would not become aroused typically felt disappointed, sexually frustrated, ashamed, and used. Um, so arousal is a key part in um, making for a pleasurable sexual experience. Uh, developing the skills of sensuality can also be very, very, very helpful. Helpful, And what sensuality is, is it's the, the art of what you feel without reaction or judgment. Um, there's an article that I meant to bring and did not. It's from the 90s. It's very old. But if you Google sensate focus, there was an article that pops up and it's full of um i think there's three activities uh in how to develop this idea of sensuality and the first activity they kind of get more uh intimate as you go along so the first one uh with your your spouse 
the two of you uh, are naked and with avoiding uh, breasts and genitals. Um, the one partner is the, the giver of touch and one is the receiver of touch. And you just spend time letting the partner touch you where you're not doing anything else except thinking and feeling uh, and your and what you're experiencing. Uh, kind of helps with us as women who are really good about squirrel, you know, oh, laundry. Uh, oh, I forgot to turn off the dishes, dishwasher, uh, coffee maker. <laughs> I don't know, whatever. Uh, so it kind of helps to bring intentionality around what you're feeling and those skills um, when developed can really help to improve sexual encounters uh, the practice of focused touching uh, borrows principles from mindfulness uh, and encourages you to let go of judgment and uh, focus on the experience of sensation so that's what that's about that can be a really helpful helpful tool developing sensuality um, even without the pressure of vaginal penetration a lot of those activities can be done without vaginal penetration and it's a really neat way to build intimacy and relationship without that pressure okay uh, also uh, important to have conversations with your partner about what feels good um, sometimes we get in ruts or rhythms um, and forget to kind of you know have conversations uh, so creating a safe place for those conversations to take place is also really important okay myth busted right <laughs> no that's just scratching the surface with all of these all right, myth number five, also for married. Uh, it's normal for, for sex to be painful. Uh, false, 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 false. Uh, again, kind of similar to the, the leaking. Uh, while it's very common, uh, there's a new study that said 48% of women report pain with sex at some point in their life. So it's very common, but not normal. Uh, and like I said earlier today in the interview, uh, women who grew up in evangelical church cultures are two times as likely to have pain with sex. Uh, and women who have sex out of obligation to their husbands are more likely to have pain with sex. Uh, so there's something there that we need to pay attention to and something that just needs to be laid out in the open. Uh, so what are the consequences if we believe those lies? The lie that sex, uh, it's okay or it's normal for sex to be painful. Uh, women often suffer for several years prior to seeking treatment or help. Uh, marriages become sex sexless due to pain, uh, which has a direct um, impact on the relationship. So the call, what do we do about it? Um, there can be many causes for pain with sex. So if that's something that you're dealing with, um, it's important to figure out the cause, and that can be with the help of a medical provider. It's also something that we do in uh, pelvic therapy. Uh, so some frequent causes of pain with sex. The first one is an involuntary contraction of the pelvic floor. So going back to that pelvic floor muscle that rests within the pelvis as a basket, um, sometimes women's pelvic floors become... Doors are closed. <laughs> and nothing's going to get in. Not a speculum, not a tampon, uh, certainly not a penis. Um, 
very common for that to happen. Uh, I can't tell you how many women who are suffering, it's called vaginismus to put a name to that, a medical name. I uh, can't tell you how many women who are suffering with vaginismus were told by the people around them, even doctors, like, just drink a glass of wine, take a bath, and I get so mad at that. It's like, that's not going to fix it. <laughs> it needs, it's more than that. Um, so often with vaginismus, there are some triggering things. Sometimes there's not. Uh, we as people are kind of on this pendulum swing. There are some of us that our joints and bodies move a lot and are very flexible and are very open. You know, think about the, the people in your life who were always like walking around naked and free and like typically those people, there are exceptions, typically those people who are loosey-goosey and very kind of open with their body positions don't struggle with vaginismus. Um, kind of on the other end of the spectrum, there are some people who, whose bodies don't move as good, who are uh, just made stiffer. The the And that's a very scientific, there's sometimes a very like genetic reason for things to be a little bit stiffer. Uh, also the ways that they, those individuals have been taught about sex or have been taught about menstruation, like we chatted about, uh, taught about modesty, thinking about Laura, what Laura was sharing up front earlier today. Uh, some of, a lot of those teachings are teachings about purity within the church. All of those things can lead to, uh, the very closed nature. Um, experiment with me. So, uh, okay. If you were having uh, a time of anxiety or a time of pain, what body position would you get into? Right. It is like close. Where do your, your feet go together? Knees go together. Shoulders kind of tend to roll forward, kind of get into that fetal position. Uh, it's a position of comfort. Um, another thought experience or ex uh, experiment what is the position, if you had to pee really bad, what would you do? Right? <laughs> right. So what do those have in common? This, right? These muscles are very much tied to our pelvic floor. Uh, when those are engaged and things are closed, you better believe it that your pelvic floor responds. Uh, another experiment, bring your shoulders up to, think about like, oh, it's so dense, clench your jaw, and then bring your awareness to your pelvic floor. You feel how everything kind of just like sucks up inside? Yeah. So all of that is related, uh, can be related to why the pelvic floor might adapt to more of this uh, involuntary tightness contraction. Uh, sometimes trauma. So history of trauma and not always sexual. You know, people who... Um, grew up uh, without consistent homes um, or in the foster care program, uh, weren't necessarily abused uh, sexually or physically, uh, but have trauma of um, not having consistent food on the table or just kind of in a fear-based uh, mentality. Uh, that can lead to issues of an uh, involuntary tightening of those muscles. It's also linked to anxiety and depression, kind of going back to that posture. If everything sucks in, that pelvic floor follows. Another cause of pain with sex can be having a baby. Uh, it, that is a lot of trauma to that area, right? The pelvic floor, if um, well, if the baby is birthed vaginally, that's the 
biggest stretch of its life. Uh, and sometimes that can cause trauma to the muscles. Uh, sometimes women tear uh, or have episiotomies. All of those things uh, can cause pain if healing doesn't happen appropriately. Uh, skin issues, so thinking about uh, infections or inflammations uh, that can cause pain with sex. Uh, estrogen loss can also cause pain with sex. And that happens uh, after you have a baby. Estrogen levels tank and they stay low for a while. It's our body's natural birth control. Not always effective, so don't plan on that. All right. <laughs> but estrogen levels stay low and often our body will use leftover estrogen in our vaginal tissue to fuel the rest of the body, or take it to other places, which can lead to dryness, uh, atrophy, which is just like shrinking of that tissue. And that same process happens after menopause when the ovaries shut down um, and estrogen is not no longer within the system. Uh, another source of pain with sex can be prolapse. So especially uterine prolapse, which is where that uterus just makes its way down towards the entrance of the vagina. The cervix isn't meant to be touched. Um, if you've ever had a, a I mean, the gynecological, gynecological, whoa, yes, well, women exams, <laughs> like a little sweep of that area. Ouch. Yeah. Um, if it gets hit during intercourse with deeper penetration. Ouch. Um, so all of those things can feed into uh, or are different causes of pain with sex. Uh, and all of them are very treatable, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's one of the best parts of my job um, is identifying uh, in the context of sex, identifying what is causing the pain and working with that woman uh, to bring healing Okay, last myth, and then we'll open it up for some questions. Uh, this is for older married. Sex is for the young. So not true. <laughs> sex can happen and is okay at any age. Um, the consequences, if we believe that lie, uh, sometimes there's dissatisfaction in relationship or um, you know, kind of find your, your place where one partner is, is wanting and another partner isn't. Um, there's also avoidance sometimes of talking with your partner. Uh, it's really common. The longer you go without sex, the more awkward talking about sex becomes. Um, so sometimes both partners are like waiting for the other one to talk about it and it just never happens. And then it gets longer and longer and uh, becomes an issue. Uh, so what do we do about that? Uh, having healthy conversations with your partner is always a good place to start. Seek medical treatment if you need that. So if you find yourself um, in that stage of uh, wanting sex, but your maybe your partner um, has erectile dysfunction or has a prostate that's growing really rapidly or has had surgeries in that area and that's affecting um, all of the things that are necessary for sex, uh, talk to... Talk to your partner. Loop in medical professionals. Um, we treat men, too, uh, for pelvic therapy. There are lots of men who need it. Um, so, yeah, really important just to keep the communication lines open uh, and continue to seek intimacy. So even if both partners decide, like, nope, we did that, had some really good memories, and we've passed that, uh, intimacy is still valuable to, to seek after and search for. Cool. Six myths. Busted.
No, just kidding. Uh, cool. Any questions? I'm going to open the floor to anything. It's a topic that is new to me. Uh, I love that we got to talk at church. Um, so what is a pelvic therapy? Like, like, could you be a little graphic with us and like tell us some things that would help us in our sex lives or help us if we're single or, um, yeah. Just to clarify, like what a treatment plan would look like? Totally, yeah. I know. <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. So uh, just like any other physical therapy visit, um, I always start by taking a good history, uh, figuring out all of the contributing things, how many kids you had, where are you at in life, how old you are, what are good bla bowel, bladder habits, uh, where, how many times are you peeing, uh, what's your bowel schedule like, all of those things are helpful to start f like figuring out uh, what areas are working well and which ones might need more specific treatment. So it always starts with a good history. Uh, second part is uh, I usually do a screening, so clothes are on for that part, and I just watch how bodies move. Uh, where's range of motion at? of the spine, of the hips, where strength at. Um, the pelvis and the pelvic floor are the bottom part of your core. And there's a reason why we call it our core. It's the center to everything else. Um, I kind of think of uh, our abdomen like a soda can. So it's designed to contain pressure, just like a soda can uh, is designed to keep the carbonation intact. Um, so diaphragm usually sits up top pelvic floor on the bottom and your core muscles around the walls of that soda can uh, so we look at each part so how good is your breathing you know is that diaphragm moving as it should is your abdomen moving as it should is the strength of your core muscles the tummy muscles um, strong enough for the loads that you ask of it daily uh, so that's the second part. Uh, the third part uh, that we typically do in this uh, is totally patient dependent. Um, I do a pelvic floor assessment. Uh, so the only way to tell what those muscles are doing and the strength of those muscles and the coordination of those muscles is looking from the outside. So looking at the vaginal tissue, the tissue around your openings as well and what happens from the outside like when those muscles engage what should happen is it should so another experiment so sit up a little bit so think about if you were going pee and you had to stop that flow of urine what muscles would you tighten so what you should feel is the pelvic floor uh, so you should feel kind of around your vaginal opening around your anal opening it kind of should shrug up inside kind of like shoulders um, you might also feel a gentle tightening of your tummy that is good the pelvic floor and those lower tummy muscles are uniquely tied and they need to work together uh, conversely so the the pelvic floor needs to have range of motion so what we did we just tightened it uh, but it also needs to rest uh, so put one hand on your chest and one hand on your belly 
and try taking a big deep breath, but not letting that chest hand move. Yeah. Some of your belly hands are not moving very good, <laughs> but it's very, very common. Kind of thinking about you have if you have a belt of noses, your breath should fill all the way here. So that's the diaphragm working. What you should feel with that, like bring as you keep breathing, bring your awareness or your attention to the pelvic floor. What should happen is kind of like a balloon. If you push the top of the balloon, it would kind of bulge at the bottom of the balloon. So you should feel that really subtle opening of the pelvic floor. If you don't feel either of these, it's okay. <laughs> But come see me, maybe, all right? <laughs> You're not broken, but there might be some stuff to work on. Um, so that is the function of the pelvic floor. So that's 99% of what I do. I just help people learn what a good contraction is, what a good rest is, because both are important functionally. So in my sessions, in that first visit, we usually also do an internal assessment. So no stirrups, no speculum, just insert one gloved finger inside the vaginal opening and assess what happens when those muscles squeeze, what happens when you cough, uh, what happens when you hold for a while. And then paying attention is, where is bladder where it should be, is your rectum where it should be, is your uterus where it should be. Because um, all of those things are helpful information gatherers to figure out what's going on that needs a little bit of work. So yeah, good question. Yes, and it just depends on what it is. Yeah, so if you've ever heard someone tell you just do Kegels, bad advice. Because unless they've looked at your pelvic floor and assessed your pelvic floor, but they, most people do not, right? They just say generic advice. Or people, another common association is if you are leaking pee, often the association, oh, I must have a weak pelvic floor. Not the case. You could have a really rigid pelvic floor and then your, your bladder's just jamming into a concrete pad and so just gonna push out a little pee. Uh, or the coordination couldn't be there, you know, if... Uh, it's a pressure control system. So thinking of going back to that soda can analogy, if you squeeze a full soda can, what happens to the bottom? It bulges, right? Um, so often when we leak pee, if the bottom isn't ready to work at the right time, pee can come out. So it's hard, and in a setting like this, to be like, if you're leaking, just for me to say, just do this. I can't because I don't know, is it a strength thing? Is it a coordination thing? Is it a tension thing? And that's where that assessment comes in. Um, so after that assessment, then we develop a plan of care like, and talk about what the, all of the findings um, and what we're going to do together to fix them. Good question. Yeah, and yeah, we get a lot of fecal incontinence um, from really significant birth injuries. So uh, significant tearing uh, that can that happens quite a bit. Um, also with prolapse. So if there's some change of shape in that rectum in particular, that can cause loss of stool. But also unmanaged constipation uh, can also cause uh, loss of stool. 
Um, it's important to talk about these things, even with our kids, you know, kids, uh, are usually potty trained, uh, but it's not really normal for kids to be wet in the bed past the age of five. Uh, we treat kids, uh, we, we don't do any internal work on kids under the age of 18. So yeah, don't, which is good. Um, uh, but often it's, you know, bladder habits. How many times are they going pee? If they're only going pee three times a day, that poor bladder is overfilled and is a giant water balloon <laughs> and is going to le leak out pee. Uh, so we work a lot as far as what are the, the possible treatments for young kids or uh, any anyone, one of us on that aging timeline. It's really, can we normalize bowel and bladder habits? Can we get you pooping as you should? And can we get you peeing as you should? Um, should pee about six to eight times a day. If you're not, if you're peeing a lot less, you probably need to bump it up or you're not drinking enough water. Um, if you're peeing a lot more, that can lead to issues of uh, urgency, frequency, those types of things. So we do a lot of that, a lot of education. It's 99% education and then physical. Yeah. Um, Yes. Yes. Mm hmm. Yep. <sighs> uh, often is habits related. So having good daytime habits usually leads to good nighttime habits. Um, taking a peek at where's f f input and output of fluid is also a factor. If you're drinking you know, 16 ounces of water at 9 p.m., you're probably going to wake up. So sometimes cutting fluids a little bit sooner. Um, and then also analyzing why are you waking up? Uh, are you waking up because of the urge or are you just awake and you decide to go pee? Um, if it's the latter, that's more of a behavior rather than a bladder urge. So you can just stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and to help train that bladder to hold a little bit more. Uh, sometimes uh, it's very common uh, in sleep cycles, right? We get into lighter phases of sleep. So if you're not sleeping as good and you're more awake, you're more likely to pee more during the night. So good sleep, good bladder habits, cutting off fluids um, around you know a few hours before bed. Alcohol also tends to increase urine production. So if you have a nightcap or a drink later um, in the evening, that can lead to waking up in the middle of the night as well. So, yeah, good questions. Yes. Oh, oh I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here's a written question, anonymously. Um, as a married woman with a history of abuse, but now in a healthy marriage, how do I know what is healthy and appropriate um, normative sexual behavior as opposed to inappropriate or abnormal or impure? That is a, a phenomenal question. Um, and I do not feel equipped to answer this question, to be honest. Uh, I think it is a phenomenal question and one um, that would need uh, more, more guidance and more resources. A lot of these texts do dive into uh, trauma and abuse. Um, our body keeps the score. You know, there's one book, book here. That's what it's called. 
Okay, yeah. So the body keeps the score. Uh, that can often engaging in some uh, healing around the trauma uh, and having conversations around the trauma and processing it as it feels right and appropriate uh, would be where my head first goes. Um, and as far as what's what's impure um, and appropriate, uh, I don't think that there's there's a a line. Um, and I even think about this with purity in a premarital context. I think everyone's always wanting to know the line. <laughs> um, and I don't think there is one. Uh, we would like that to, to exist, but I don't think there is a line. Um, I would, I would involve Jesus in the conversation, um, and your spouse and kind of figure out where, what Jesus has to say about that. No. The question was, uh, have you heard of Julie what? Julie Slattery. That's okay. Yeah. Sweet. Cool. What's the name of the podcast so I can say it? Java with Julie. It's a podcast all about kind of that topic, diving into the uncomfortableness and uncomfortable conversations. Java with Julie. Great recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Seeking seeking good counsel. Yeah. Great question. When you figure it out, let me know. <laughs> yes. So I don't know the answer either, but um, I do work as a mental health counselor and I do a lot of couples work and I have found in book after book that I've read and I think in what the Bible describes in relationships and in couples that I've worked with, I think a general rule of thumb that works is that if one person feels uncomfortable with this, then it is not okay for us. It kind of goes back to consent. I love that. Cool. All right. It is dinner time. Thanks for taking part in opening the conversation. Um, if Let me provide you with my, e my, I don't know, my phone number, my email. Yeah. Write down. I know I didn't bring them. I meant to. Ugh. Okay. I'll have Laura send out my contact information if there are more questions that develop or if you have questions um, about this, more questions about pelvic PT. Um, most insurances allow for direct access. You often don't need a referral. You can just hop on in. And there are lots of people, about 10 um, pelvic therapists within the city. So if you have um, an insurance that's not covered um, by one, keep checking. Um, there's the place I work, just to plant a seed, um, is the Pelvic Wellness Center. And there's four of us therapists there. Uh, but there's one at PT Northwest. There's one in at the same hospital. 
there's one at Therapeutic Associates. So they're kind of sprinkled all through through the area. Um, and it's a helpful resource anytime things in this area are going not so good. So feel free to ask questions later if you have them. But you're at, you are dismissed. Break. Yes. I will also, yes, send book book recommendations. Yep. 